I'm very pleased to see you all here this evening and to have the honor of welcoming Professor Estelle Friedman to Barnard, or welcoming back. Um, I know we're all very much looking forward to her reflections on coming of age at Barnard in 1968. But before we begin, I want to begin, I want to um, just make a few announcements about some upcoming events uh, that is sponsored by the center. This Friday, the Center is co-sponsoring Fear of Flying, a conference on the work of Erica Jong, another renowned Barnard alum. The conference will be held at the Social Hall Union Theological Seminary at 2 p.m. Next Tuesday at 1 p.m., I'm sorry, at noon, April 1, the last of our lunchtime lectures will be given by um, Anupama Rao, Assistant Professor of a South Asian History at Barnard. Her talk is entitled, the Biopolitics of Caste, Sexual Violence, and the Reproduction of Untouchability. And that will be held at the center on the first floor of this building. For this year's Rennert Forum on Women in Judaism, University of Michigan Professor of Anthropology Ruth Behar will be giving a lecture entitled Impossible Homecomings, Women Ethnographers, and the, the Places They Left Behind. This will be held on Thursday, April 10, at 5.30 p.m. in the Elliott Parlor of Elliott Hall. All the details of these events are in our newsletter in the back, and I encourage you to pick one up and take it with you, um, and I invite you to return. Finally, here to officially welcome you on behalf of the college is the president of Barnard, to whom we at the Barnard Center for Research on Women are deeply indebted for her unflagging support of the center's work. As she steps down this year, after 14 years of leadership, we have the great pleasure of honoring her and her contribution to women's education, academic integrity and freedom, and women's leadership in a panel discussion at 5.30 p.m. on April 28 uh, in the held auditorium in this building. That's on the third floor. It is my pleasure to present Judith Shapiro. Thank you, Nefertiti. Well, this is certainly quite an evening uh, for the Gildersleeve Lecture. I mean, what a turnout. And I am very, very happy to be here and to be able to announce, uh, to be here with this evening's lecture. Over the years, the Gildersleeve series has given us the opportunity to invite many eminent visitors from a wide range of fields to the Barnard campus. This year, it is our great honor to welcome, or welcome back, American historian Estelle Friedman. We are, in fact, uh, she, she was a proud member of the class of 1969, and I gather there are a number of other proud members of the class of 1969. Would you like to stand? <laughs> I dare say there are members of the class of 1968, the class of 1970, who may also be here as well. Um, she, of course, will bring a historian's eye to the pivotal events of 1968, coupled with the personal impressions of a student in the midst of it all. Now, a few things before we hear from our speaker. I want to call your attention to the photographs on display around the room, Martha Stewart in Bermuda shorts, among other things. <laughs> they portray the, that was a political moment, apparently, uh, here. We can talk about that later. They portray the campus before, during, and after the spring of 1968. Our archivist, Donald Glassman, and image archivist, Astrid Cravens, are to be thanked for pulling this exhibit together. So do please have a look at all of them. If you were there at the time, 
it will surely resonate. And if you are a student for whom the 60s is mostly a retro curiosity, um, you will learn a great deal. Also, there's a wonderful documentary film, uh, a work in progress by Edward Yan, technology guru of the Barnard Electronic Archives known as Beetle. You can see a rough cut of the film online by going to www.barnard.edu slash bc. Uh, 1968, that is BC in the sense of Barnard College. Um, <laughs> Edward, Edward interviewed Barnard faculty, administrators, and students who were on campus during the tumultuous spring of 1968. So thank you, Edward, and all who spoke on camera for bringing impressions of the time back to life. Now, I certainly have my own very strong memories of that time since I was a graduate student at Columbia in the anthropology department from 64 to 70. Uh, I will not go on at length about my own memories of that, but maybe during the discussion period afterwards. I was actually in Brazil doing field work with the Yanomamo during the year 1967-68, which as it turned out was calmer um, than being <laughs> here. Uh, despite what others have said about the Yanomamo. But um, uh, I, I can, I was here though for the spring of 1970, the Cambodian invasion, and can share with you some interesting ethnographic observations on the different behavior, for example, of the sociology department and the anthropology department in any event. But before I turn the program over, I wanna thank the 1968 Planning Committee for their dedication and depth of knowledge Flora Davidson, Bob McCahey, Herb Sloan, Roz Rosenberg, Gisela Fosado, Liz Glynn, Joyce Lewandowski, and Rona Wilk, in addition to those I've already thanked, Donald, Astrid, and Edward. Thanks also to Will Simpkins for organizing the group, and many thanks to the entire Barnard Center for Research on Women's staff for their endless hard work. And now it is my pleasure to introduce one of our most distinguished resident experts in all things historical, Barnard Professor of History, Rosalind Rosenberg, who will, who will introduce Estelle Friedman. Thank you, Judith. And thank you, everyone, for coming this evening to uh, celebrate Women's History Month at Barnard College and to commemorate the 40th anniversary of student protests at Barnard College and Columbia. Uh, I am very happy to be able to welcome home Estelle Friedman, Barnard class of 1969, and the Edgar E. Robinson Professor of US History at Stanford University, as well as this year's Gildersleeve Professor at Barnard College. When Estelle Friedman flew off to Stanford in 1976, she had just completed her PhD in history at Columbia University. Having done my own undergraduate and graduate work at Stanford in history, I can testify that Stanford needed Estelle. <laughs> <laughs> and she did not disappoint. She played a leading role in the development of the Institute for Research on Women and Gender, she was a co-founder of the program in feminist studies, and she became a legendary history professor at Stanford. Uh, just to mention two of her many awards, she won the Lloyd W. Dinkinspiel Award for Outstanding Service to Undergraduate Education in 19, um, 1979? 81, I'm sorry. 
Uh, you have to have been an undergraduate at Stanford to know what a really big deal this, this was. And more recently, she's won the Nancy Lyman Rockler Mentorship Award from the American Historical Association. That means the, the largest uh, professional association of historians in the country gave Estelle the Mentorship Award for the country. Uh, Estelle has been good enough to send uh, a few of the beneficiaries of her inspiring mentorship back to Barnard. Uh, among others, Laura Kay in Women's Studies and Astronomy and Physics, Dorothy Coe and Abbasade George in History, and we are immensely grateful for that generosity. Uh, as you can see from the program, Professor Friedman's lecture this evening is entitled Coming of Age at Barnard, 1968. Since she will be focusing on this formative year, I want to say a few words by way of introduction about the adult she became following this pivotal moment and why she's had such a large impact on scholars in the past 40 years. You should note that when Estelle Friedman began graduate school at Columbia, women's history did not exist as a field. All of her professors were men. Those men were concerned almost exclusively with male leaders. They were overwhelmingly political historians. There were a few younger professors who were talk, uh, talking about a new approach, social history, writing history from the bottom up by focusing on the lives of common people. That is to say, male common people. <laughs> Estelle Friedman's advisor had made his reputation through a study of American prisons. That is, American prisons for men. In good, filial, pietistic, graduate student fashion, Estelle wrote her dissertation on prisons. The difference was that she wrote on prisons for women and on the women who ran them. That dissertation became the award-winning book, Their Sisters Keepers, Women Prison Reform in America, 1830 to 1930. Estelle's subsequent research has spanned many topics and historical genres, including a pathbreaking history of sexuality, uh, written with John D'Amelio, who's here this evening, Intimate Matters, A History of Sexuality in America in 1988, a compelling biography entitled Maternal Justice, Miriam Van Waters and the Female Reform Tradition in 1996. I cannot emphasize strongly enough how courageous it is for a social history trained historian to write a biography. Uh, she's also written a rousing history of feminism entitled No Turning Back, The History of Feminism and the Future of Women in 2002. And many probing methodological essays, some of which students at Barnard have been reading and talking about this week in seminars to which Professor Friedman has been invited. Her work, in short, is varied. And yet, I would submit, it all goes back to that first study of women's prisons. Most women sent to prison were prostitutes. They were disproportionately working class and women of color. The women who ran the prisons were usually white, single, reform-minded professionals. What better site to explore issues of gender, race, class, and sexuality. And that is what Estelle Friedman has done. She used the prison as a touchstone to which she periodically returned as she helped open the history of women to students and fellow scholars. 
Through her careful, insightful research, she taught us the power of women's institutions, the historically specific meaning of sexual identity, the challenge of balancing theories of social construction with those of personal agency, the tensions between legal advocacy and historical inquiry, and the enduring power of feminism, even in hostile times. I could go on, but you've come to hear Estelle. So without further ado, I give you Professor Friedman and coming of age at Barnard, 1968. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. I just want to make sure the mic is good in the back. Can you hear me more? That hand meant good. OK, thank you. Great. My title for this talk, Coming of Age at Barnard, 1968, borrows, of course, from Margaret Mead, a Barnard alumna whose path I crossed here in Barnard Hall at a Thursday noon meeting on November 7, 1968. On that day, Mead, who pioneered the study of coming of age, rejected the then popular concept of the generation gap. Cross-culturally, she argued, elders have always passed on rituals and knowledge, and youth had best learn from them. I thought I knew better. Absorbed in my own family drama at the time, the generation gap felt quite concrete to me. While the burgeoning youth culture and the adult tirades against it internationally made it look almost universal. And so that day, I argued with Mead who adamantly dismissed my insistence that the generation gap was real. That I was challenging an authority figure like Margaret Mead reveals a good deal about the student I had become by 1968. Arriving at Barnard in 1965, I never would have questioned the wisdom of a distinguished speaker. By the time I graduated in 1969, however, I applied a critical lens to everything everything I heard and read. Now, I've since observed that many undergraduates follow this path, but my belief that a new generation had better answers than the old derived from coming of age in a particular place, Barnard, at a particular historical moment, the late 1960s, when inherited wisdom seemed to be up for grabs. Tonight, I want to combine personal reminiscences with some historical perspective to explore the critique of authority that defined my coming of age at Barnard in 1968. Two themes are going to reverberate through this reflection. The first concerns the pace of change. I want to be clear that neither personal nor social change occurs suddenly. No one year turns a corner without a buildup of underlying pressures. Nonetheless, a period that is especially dense in traumatic events can, I believe, hasten the shifting of paradigms, the coalescing of a generation, the discrediting of inherited authorities. 1968 at Barnard was such a time for me. My second theme concerns the mixed blessings wrought by challenging authority. 
For while that process promised emancipation and adulthood, it could also bring disillusion. Freedom, as the song reminds us, can mean nothing left to lose. Revolution and liberation can create new vulnerabilities in their wake. So to explore these patterns, the gradual and immediate seeds of change, and the mixed legacies of social revolutions, I'm going to begin by sketching briefly my changing worldview from the time I arrived at Barnard in 1965 up to that year that historians have dubbed the watershed or the riptide year of 1968. And then I'm going to sweep through that year, but not chronologically. I'm going to examine three subjects. First, racial and ethnic identities. Second, anti-war protests and the student movement. And third, gender and sexuality. Now, my account is by no means representative of all Barnard students, but I do hope that it will illuminate the process of historical change that made the 1960s and 1968 in particular a pivotal moment. As befits someone of my generation, a mental soundtrack accompanies my memories of the 1960s. Maybe not the common one, but let's imagine the pop tune that blasted from everybody's radios on the seventh floor of Reed Hall during my first year at Barnard. ABC, that's how elementary it's gonna be. <laughs> you remember. That fantasy of ease woke me up every morning, but it could not have been less accurate. I arrived at Barnard, a conventional nice Jewish girl from a small high school near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where only three graduates in my class, the other two male, went out of state to college. I longed to succeed, which required, I presumed, playing by the rules, being liked, and, of course, pleasing my family. I respected faculty, administrators, policemen, politicians, <laughs> And I believed what I read in the New York Times. <laughs> I had no idea how ill-prepared I was to succeed academically, nor how naive and provincial were my political views. My first semester, neatly symbolized by the great New York City power blackout of 1965, <laughs> challenged my expectations on all fronts. Sophisticated faculty, such as my freshman English instructor, Catherine Stimson, <laughs> tore apart my very uncritical essays. On the high holidays, I was shocked that the synagogue providing free seats for students expected a cash deposit for prayer books. Who carried cash on the high holidays? Babysitting, the only job allowed to freshmen, barely provided enough money to buy books, but the spacious book-filled apartments of Upper West Side parents inspired an awe bordering on culture shock. And although I had expected to broaden my social horizons at college, my dorm buddies tended to be other nice Jewish girls, several of them also from Pennsylvania. <laughs> they know who they are. <laughs> Over the next two years, incremental changes reshaped my world. I discovered the joys of history and social science classes, taught by the likes of the distinguished sociologist Mira Komarovsky. Although I spent most weekends visiting my hometown boyfriend at Yale, that left weeknights to hone my academic skills. 
More importantly, I became intellectually curious. Uh, writing my European history final, I remember writing about the limits of the Enlightenment, and it just raised personal doubts about religious faith, but also about the worship of rationality. Soon I longed for experience beyond my provincial moorings. Midway through college, I stopped going home for summers, and I also declined the urgent invitations of classmates to go to Israel. In 1967, I took a summer class at Harvard, and I worked in a Head Start office. And one Saturday, I was crossing Cambridge Common. I bumped into a Barnard acquaintance who was taking care of a desk during Vietnam summer. So I stopped to chat, took the literature, read it, and took it to heart. Even visiting my hometown now, I encountered members of a hippie commune who challenged my opposition to using marijuana. I declined because it was illegal, but so is premarital sex, they grinned, <laughs> exposing my hypocrisy. As 1968 approached, my soundtrack had already shifted. Lying in my first single room in the 616 residence, where I lit multicolored candles and wrote bad poetry. <laughs> I listened intensely to the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper and to Judy Collins' Wildflowers. I would play the Leonard Cohen song, Suzanne, over and over as if it held a clue to my salvation. And you want to travel with her, and you want to travel blind, and you think perhaps she's, you trust her for she's touched your perfect body with her mind. I wanted to travel, and I wanted to travel with whoever she was, perhaps the self that I was in the process of constructing who would be a passionate and not merely rational creature. By my senior year, I was taking yoga at noon, photography on the weekends, and a few more risks than in the past. Some of my religious and social values, respect for authority among them, began to erode with exposure to both academic ideas and to the youth culture around me. I'd already exchanged my dresses and skirts for blue jeans. The one miniskirt I tried left me much too chilled. My center of gravity shifted from Harrisburg to Barnard to New York City. Barbara Novak's modern art class got me to MoMA, a job with the Urban core took me twice a week to City Hall. No more weekends in New Haven for me. I even refused to go home for winter break, choosing time alone, longing for a spiritual awakening and immersed in late adolescent angst. Yet I was not alone. Outside my dorm room, the cultural and the political converged in historical dimensions. In a journal written, a journal entry that I wrote about a decade later, I recalled that time. I quote, there was a movement, a mood to change, to explore. We walked the streets, whether marching formally or playing our way down Broadway as a movement, swarming the Sheep Meadow or the Fillmore East, the buses and subways overflowing with our kind in blue jeans and flower-filled eyes and badges, buttons, and boots, end of quote. Historians refer to our culture as a quest for authenticity, or in the words of another women's college student at the time, Hillary Rodham, our generation was, quote, searching for a more immediate, ecstatic, and penetrating mode of living. 
for me, the confluence of personal and public traumas in 1968 heightened my willingness and lowered my resistance to joining this search. In March, when President Lyndon Johnson addressed the nation on television to withdraw from the presidential campaign, given the success of anti-war candidates, he proclaimed that, quote, there is a division in the American House, end of quote. And in the following months, an unbearable series of blows deepened that divide. The assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. in April and Robert Kennedy in June. The violence after King's death and again at the Democratic National Convention in August. Joining 80,000 others at a peace rally in Central Park that April, I witnessed both memorials for Dr. King and festive chants of peace, love, Eugene. I hoped to cast my first ballot when I turned 21 in the autumn election for peace candidate Eugene McCarthy. But instead, I voted with a heavy heart for the establishment Democrat Hubert Humphrey and watched in dismay as Richard Nixon ascended to the presidency. Each of these moments weakened my faith in American politics. Simultaneously, I lost important personal moorings. That my beloved grandmother died unexpectedly in January 1968 and then unable to live without her, my grandfather died in December of that year, left me shaken in ways that I did not then comprehend. In the months between those personal losses, campus events brought national political turmoil to my doorstep, particularly the Columbia student protests. And then to add to the upheaval, I spent the summer of 1968 working in a hotel in Nagoya, Japan, which provided my first international perspective on being an American. My life changed course during that year, in part because of the political whirlwinds, in part because of my own very raw emotions, and in part as well because of the intellectual respites that Barnard provided. I want to take you back through that year by reliving the dilemmas I faced concerning race and ethnicity, student protests, and sexuality. The sounds of thousands of voices singing that black and white together meant we shall overcome segregation characterized the idealized vision of race relations I brought to Barnard in 1965. By the time I graduated, however, my understandings of race had transformed in unexpected ways. Historians sometimes distinguish between what they call the good 60s of Martin Luther King Jr.'s nonviolent marches with the quest for civil rights and the later bad 60s characterized by urban violence and the militant black nationalism embodied by the raised guns of Black Panther Party members. Well, recent scholars have questioned this divide. After all, black nationalism and racial violence both had earlier roots, while nonviolent protest and peaceful community organizing persisted throughout the decade. At the time, however, for a liberal Jewish college student living in New York City, it did seem as if by 1968, American race relations had gone into a tailspin. Black nationalism, both challenged my understanding of race and resonated with my experience of ethnicity. 
In high school, I had watched from afar the media coverage of school integration struggles in the South. But I heard firsthand about the 1963 March on Washington from a recent Barnard graduate who had been my Jewish camp counselor and the reason I came to Barnard, for she had helped to organize the event. She then wrote me letters about her efforts to create community action projects in Mississippi. So in college, I expected to follow in her footsteps and participate in this historic movement. By the time I arrived on campus, however, the shift from integration to separatism had begun. Now, in my small high school, white and black students rarely sat at the same lunch tables. And at Barnard, I supposed there would be no such prejudicial seating. The choice by black students to form their own cafeteria groups literally turned the tables on white liberals like me. My one organizing effort, along with a friend studying education, we tried to start an after-school program at Barnard for teenage girls from Harlem, failed when the adolescents made clear that they did not want any handouts from us. Early in 1968, I read Stokely Carmichael's recently published book, Black Power, The Politics of Liberation in America. Carmichael was a leader in the Interracial Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, and he had begun to proselytize black power. Now, in part, I felt attracted to this principle of self-determination, but in practice, I puzzled over the consequences. In the spring of 1968, for example, when a predominantly African-American community school board in the Ocean Hill-Brownsville district of Brooklyn dismissed a white teacher, the predominantly Jewish United Federation of Teachers waged a two-month strike to protect teachers' rights. Whatever the merits on either side, the clash helped to splinter the historic alliances between blacks and Jews in the civil rights movement. Feeling excluded, confused, and unsure how to respond, I turned my academic attention to black history. An intellectual turning point occurred in the spring of 1968. I was in a junior history seminar taught by Professor Annette Baxter. And when we read about the white radical abolitionist John Brown, who in the 1850s had led African Americans in violent uprisings against slavery, I thought how different from the contemporary politics of H. Rep. Brown, a former SNCC organizer who joined the Black Panther Party in 1968. So during Professor Baxter's office hours, I commented on this shift from militant white leadership in the 19th century to militant black leadership in the 20th century. Her suggestion that I exceed the deadline in order to develop this point in my paper seemed revolutionary to a rule keeper like myself. But I took her advice. And my explorations of black separatism led to my senior honors thesis on back to Africa movements in American history. Aside from setting me on the path to a career of historical scholarship, I spent my most rewarding hours of late 1968 in the New York Public Library reading 19th century pamphlets. The study of separatist politics continued to intrigue me when I became an historian of women, feminism, and sexuality. Years later, I realized that my appreciation of the positive values of separatism had deep personal roots in the Jewish community in which I had been raised. By 1968, however, my identification with that world had already begun to fragment. Barnard students had shown me a range of possibilities for being Jewish. 
from far more secular to far more observant than me. In classes on contemporary religion, I first learned about Christianity, and I learned about Christian theologians who grappled with social justice, which made me a bit more trusting of Gentiles. Meanwhile, political conflicts in New York disabused me of the fantasy that all Jews were political liberals. But it was working in Japan during the summer of 68, a choice I can only explain as traveling as far from home as possible without going to Israel, <laughs> that made being Jewish seem irrelevant for the first time in my life. I had become acutely aware in Japan of being not simply a gaijin, a foreigner, but more particularly an American. For the first time, I wrote of myself as part of a Western tradition. And then one evening at dinner with a group of international students, the Egyptian man sitting next to me asked what I had just ordered, katsudon. So I explained, it's pork over rice. When he and all of his Egyptian friends declined the dish, I suddenly realized they were Muslims. I wrote later that night in my journal, did he realize what I might be? He took me for a Christian, and I wasn't about to argue. It was strange, though. It was so strange that I never again allowed myself to pass. The loss of my grandfather in December of 68 weakened my bonds to Jewish identity, and I remain haunted to this day by the words I spoke immediately after getting the phone call informing me of his death. My God, I don't have to be Jewish anymore. In my Gentile-dominated hometown, he had ensured my strong Jewish socialization. And without him, no one would be keeping track of my observance or the last names of my boyfriends. <laughs> it did not take long, however, to realize that my Jewish identity could not be so easily excised. After graduation, when I had trouble finding a job where I could apply my studies of uh, my studies of urban politics and race relations, it was a national Jewish organization that hired me to work with a coalition of black clergy and rabbis to improve intergroup relations in New York in the wake of the Ocean Hill-Brownsville confrontations. In a sense then, I returned to my ethnic base, but with a far different perspective from having come of age at Barnard, where I had to come to terms with my identities as a Jew and as a white person. For one, in New York, unlike my hometown, I could take my religion for granted. For to be Jewish here was to be an insider, not an outsider. But I also learned the diverse ways to construct Jewish identity. In addition, at Barnard, I learned that white people could be outsiders and that we did not have a monopoly on leadership. The black separatism I witnessed and studied at Barnard strongly influenced my subsequent identity politics as a feminist and as a lesbian. In time, however, I recognized that the risk, I recognized the risk that separatism could exempt moderate white students like myself from taking responsibility for addressing racism. And while I remain sympathetic to separatist organizing, I have come to value as well alliance and coalition across identities. Mm, <coughs> While still at Barnard, another sound captured the dilemmas of the anti-war and student movements. I was standing around at a um, 
fundraising concert with some Columbia seniors, listening to the band Country Joe and the Fish, belt out the chorus to their protest song, I Feel Like I'm Fixing to Die Rag, feel free to join me. And it's one, two, three, what are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. Next stop is Vietnam, thank you. <laughs> now I knew that the male students around me were all scrambling to find a way to avoid that fate. And I later wondered how much of their opposition to the war stemmed from the threat that it posed to their own self-determination. In this sense, it was hard to distinguish between the student movement and the anti-war movement. Both groups questioned the authority vested in institutions we perceived as enabling the war in Vietnam. The government waged war and drafted students, but the university colluded through military research and by allowing military recruiters on campus. Both institutions controlled the fate of students, and both became targets of protest at Columbia, culminating in 1968 with student occupations of campus buildings, the infamous police bust, and the student strike. What brought so many students here to support this protest? My own journey may illustrate one path of politicization. Now, my anti-war politics began not during rallies or protests, but as I read the data and listened to the eminently rational arguments presented by a Columbia engineering professor, Seymour Melman, in an extracurricular course called the Peace Budget that he offered at Earl Hall. That course weakened my faith in authority, but I was not yet, an active, I was not yet active in the anti-war movement, in part because of my deep distrust of chaos and disorder. I recall, for example, one day stopping at a rally just across Broadway at 116th Street, where my Columbia big brother, another Jewish summer camper, was shouting to the assembled students raging against the university. And my primary reaction was fear of the crowd, of the rhetoric, of too much emotionality. The content wasn't wrong, I later recalled, but the way it was packaged did not make me feel comfortable. At that point, I was not going to travel with him or travel blind. The confrontational style that had evolved in the Columbia student movement sent me running back across the street to Barnard. Well, it would be too easy to say 1968 changed all that, for me or for American society generally. As I've suggested, social movements build slowly, even though public notice of them may seem to erupt suddenly. Anti-war protests built upon decades of religious pacifism and war resistance, as well as the ban the bomb campaigns against nuclear weapons in the 1950s. And during that decade, cultural critics from the Beats to Paul Goodman had turned a critical eye on American conformity. In 1960, the courage of the black students who risked physical assault when they sat in to integrate southern lunch counters attracted national media attention, as did the free speech movement on the Berkeley campus in 1964. By then, members of the new left group, Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, had articulated the goals of a more participatory democracy in their 1962 Port Huron Statement which called for individuals to, quote, share in those social decisions determining the quality and direction of their lives and in the process to create meaningful communities. So these deeper social currents surely propelled student protest. Yet, in one year, 
1968, activists from Morningside Heights to Stanford, from Paris to Prague, attempted to overthrow authorities in the name of broadening democracy. In the US, the tensions wrought by the Viet Cong victories during the Tet Offensive, signaling no quick end to the Vietnam War, and by the turmoil in National Party politics, as well as the assassination of Dr. King, destabilized formal authority, creating, I think, a kind of vacuum into which youth poured its anger and fear. Though grounded in anti-war protests, student discontent spilled over into a broader critique of university decision-making, and that student movement swept me into its stream. At Columbia, SDS members demanded that the university end its affiliation with the Institute for Defense Analysis, and following the lead of the Student Afro-American Society, they condemned the design for a new gymnasium in Morningside Park with its separate Harlem and Columbia entrances. Seizing power of their own, radical students tried to enter the gym construction site, and then, on April 23rd, 1968, they occupied university buildings and, for a while, held hostage the undergraduate dean. Black students in Hamilton Hall presented the administration with curricular as well as political demands and soon asked the white students to leave. Hundreds of white SDS members then occupied Low Library, Fairweather Hall, Avery Hall, the Mathematics Building. At the time, I'm not sure I could have clearly identified all of the goals that the protesters wanted to achieve. Only later did I learn that the major goal of campus SDS chair Mark Rudd was to radicalize the student body. He partly succeeded in gaining student and faculty concern for the protesters while creating a campus-wide crisis. Guards and police quickly appeared at Columbia, checking IDs and patrolling campus, while counter-demonstrators, the jocks, tried to prevent food deliveries to the students occupying the buildings. Moderates, like myself, carefully watched how the university would respond to these protesters. Would the administration, which had already suppressed information about governmental ties to defense research, uphold democratic values of open discourse or attempt to silence dissent? In a letter I wrote to my family that spring, I explained how anxious I was for a speedy conclusion, a compromise, anything to resume normal academic life. Initially, I could not consider granting disciplinary amnesty to the protesters. If they fancied themselves civilly disobedient, I wrote, they were required to accept the punishment. I placed great faith in the ad hoc faculty group that had been negotiating with Columbia President Grayson Kirk because they issued what I considered to be, and I quote myself, extremely reasonable recommendations of mediation, quote. Naively, I expected that, quote, a process of rational discourse which we have been taught to respect, quote, will save the day. In the color-coded world of late April 1968, I wore a blue armband that identified concerned students pledged to nonviolence. We gathered on the campus center on the evenings of the fifth and sixth days of the occupation, intending our vigil to show the administration that a large portion of the student body favored compromise rather than coercion. On April 30th, however, rumors of an imminent police action circulated, and I knew that I faced a personal crossroads. 
Standing with a Barnard friend, wondering whether to return to the safety of 616 or to remain and protest the university's use of force instead of negotiation, we each decided to stay. And in that moment, I knew that I had just parted from the world in which I had grown up. For years, other students had been taking far greater risks, but this was the first time that I placed myself on the line, a participant rather than a student or an observer of history. The account I sent home to justify my actions detailed that evening. Some students left campus, some stood back, and I and hundreds of others walked quietly to the faculty who surrounded the buildings and offered our support, I told my parents. Now, I stressed the presence of faculty not only to show the seriousness of the protest, but because watching Barnard faculty stand up to the Columbia administration had so impressed me. They, too, defied authority. With 50 other students and faculty, I took my place, sitting on the steps outside of Fairweather Hall to create a buffer between the police and the demonstrators inside. Around 2.30 a.m., I first heard screams and saw cameras flashing, witnessed that now famous blood-covered student face rush by, and heard that hundreds of tactical patrol force police were en route. As the police cleared the building in front of us, I recounted, and again I quote, we were very scared, we sang, we discussed the coming encounter and all decided that our role was one of passive resistance. The faculty would link arms standing in front of the steps while we students would go limp for the, peace, for the police to pass on the steps. Not an effective block, but a symbolic protest of the use of outside force in a university affair." End of quote. First, plainclothes officers, then reporters, cameramen, and announcers, and then helmeted police appeared. The advanced warning consisted of an announcement that we were trespassing on university property and would be removed by force if we did not evacuate. The faculty stood firm. The police charged them. We went limp, I wrote home, describing in detail the physical force applied by officers, two of whom lifted me off the steps before another pushed me to the ground. Then a plainclothes policeman dragged me up and shoved me against a girl who had hurt her foot. The officers passed each of us down the line to another officer to the waiting police vans. I was shaken, stunned, startled at the manhandling, I wrote. But when I saw another girl cracking up from the experience, I held back my tears and I grabbed for her hand and another friend. We managed to evade arrest by running between the police cars and the paddy wagons to a safe corner on Amsterdam Avenue. Then we tried to return to our dorms. But mounted police chased us along with hundreds and hundreds of others far down Broadway. There I saw Barnard government professor Peter Juveler, who had been outside Fairweather Hall, now with his face gashed, shirt torn, glasses broken. I made my way alone over to Riverside Drive and began to walk up towards Barnard. And then I recognized walking in front of me Mark Rudd and some of his comrades, who also remained free. Something about the arrogance of their comments to each other made me feel almost as unsafe as I had around the police. The doors to 616 were locked for the night, but at dawn, I was sitting outside the office of Barnard President Martha Peterson, along with others who had been active in student government here. When Peterson arrived, we told her everything that happened. In stark contrast to the Columbia administration, she listened 
and she sympathized. And she then called an all-college meeting in the gym to talk about what had happened. And she went into action to bail out the arrested Barnard students. The bust in its aftermath deepened my political and academic engagement. At first, I felt powerless, drained, indignant at the brutality, in my words then, disillusioned when I read the New York Times coverage of the bust, which omitted police violence on campus and on Broadway, I realized that the paper of record did not, in fact, always report what had actually happened. I reconsidered my opposition to amnesty, which now seemed preferable to violence. I also blamed myself and other moderate students for our past apathy, and I joined the chants of Kirk must go, referring to the Columbia president who had authorized the police action. If the peace movement could bring down President Johnson, why couldn't the student movement overturn discredited authorities on campus? While trusted institutions like the Times and Columbia had failed, Barnard gave me hope. President Peterson's handling of the crisis exemplified for me the difference between a liberal arts women's college and a mass university. For example, during the student general strike that followed the police action, which is really a boycott of classes to support demands such as amnesty for those arrested, Peterson gave Barnard students and faculty the option of meeting outside of university classrooms or following your own conscience. When Professor Suzanne Wemple held our medieval history class on the lawn outside the library, she adapted the curriculum to teach about student protests during the Middle Ages. Exhilarated by the break from the syllabus and old classroom formats, I felt like a participant in academia, not merely a consumer. Despite the failure of the Columbia administration, the inspiration of faculty trying to negotiate a settlement, facing the police, and improvising their classrooms kindled my belief that a revitalized university could emerge from this crisis. In retrospect, I suspect that the student movement at Columbia gave me some false hopes about the capacity of the university to change. Throughout my career as an academic, I have relived disillusionment and struggle, shocked anew when administrators make foolish or even corrupt decisions, perpetuate inequality, or stifle dissent. Coming of age at Barnard in 1968 taught me the importance of resisting unwise authority, but I could not have known then that it would be a lifelong challenge. The unexpected consequences of questioning authority most starkly followed the transformation of sexual values for me during my Barnard years. My cohort entered college at the end of the era of in loco parentis, when strict dormitory rules intended, in part, to protect girls from sexual risk. By the time we graduated, that system had crashed. Co-ed dorms were emerging, and the Barnard Health Service, which once joked that the best birth control pill was an aspirin held tightly between the knees, <laughs> came to acknowledge the widespread practice of premarital sex. Beyond campus, an underground women's liberation movement was issuing manifestos and organizing consciousness-raising groups, 
1968, feminists attracted national media attention while demonstrating against sexism at the Miss America pageant in Atlantic City. Within a few years, Barnard College would become a center of feminist scholarship and activism. But I came of age just before that moment, during a sexual rather than a feminist revolution. From the moment the class of 1969 arrived on campus, the challenge to sexual propriety commenced with jokes about our class number 69, <laughs> a code I soon learned for oral sex. One of the more sexually experienced frosh in my dorm, who came from Amsterdam, offered to provide weekend dates at men's colleges to relieve others of the burden of their virginity. Though some of us declined the opportunity, we all resented the rules of having to sign out and in the dorms at night, meet early curfews, and of course limit male visitors to a few weekend hours protected by a matchbook. That is, of course, the rule while men visited you, you had to keep your door open the width of a book, hence the ubiquity of the matchbook. <laughs> These complaints aside, a code of silence prevailed, a kind of don't ask, don't tell, whether you were having sex, and certainly not if you had procured an illegal abortion. For the most part, we worked around the system rather than confront it. During my sophomore year, for example, a student gave me the name of a gynecologist who prescribed birth control pills to unmarried women, and I always kept $500 in a savings account no matter how meager my meal budget, just in case contraception failed. In 1968, the Linda LeClaire affair brought the hypocrisy about sexual protection into public view. In early March, the New York Times published a feature story about cohabiting couples, in which a Barnard student described living off campus with her boyfriend by circumnavigating housing regulations. The interview also revealed that this student had obtained an abortion, then took birth control pills, but now hoped to have a child unmarried. College authorities easily identified her as Linda LeClaire, and an angry and powerful alumni, many angry and powerful alumni, called for the expulsion of this immoral student. LeClaire and her boyfriend, Peter Baer, who faced no such call for penalties, belonged to SDS and they actively organized draft resistance. She framed her defense in terms of student rights to choose their own housing, and LeClaire called for changes in Barnard rules to allow any student to live off campus and an end to curfews. That most students agreed with these reforms, a campus survey suggested, reflected the broader political climate. One writer in the Barnard Bulletin drew parallels with the demand for self-determination in the student and anti-war movements. I quote, in a society where concern over the draft, the war, and human rights have forced most teenagers to grow up, it is hypocritical of Barnard not to treat its students as adults. Or as one historian has put it, in Linda LeClaire, quote, the anti-war movement and the sexual revolution merged into a single figure. As a member of the Student Housing Committee, I had argued for eliminating most curfews, that I had agreed about the hypocrisy of singling out LeClaire, whose greater indiscretion, it seemed to me, was incriminating herself in the press. <laughs> I took heart 
when the Judicial Council meted out a slap on the wrist penalty, barring her from campus dining spaces. <laughs> Under alumni pressure, however, President Peterson threatened to expel LeClaire. And in response, T. Grace Atkinson, president of the New York chapter of the National Organization for Women, which was a much more militant branch uh, than the uh, more liberal national, national Organization for Women, which had just been founded in 1966. Uh, T. Grace Atkinson arrived on campus to foment rebellion at Barnard. A meeting, I think they wouldn't let it at Barnard, was in Earl Hall. A meeting with Atkinson was my first encounter with a self-identified feminist, but I have to admit, I was not yet a convert. I found Atkinson's fiery rhetoric unnerving and an odd contrast to Linda and Peter's gentle pacifism. Barnard avoided a confrontation when the occupation of Columbia buildings eclipsed the off-campus housing issue and Linda LeClaire dropped out of school. But in loco parentis, never again held the same sway at Barnard. Cohabitation represented only one current in the sexual sea change of the 1960s. It involved, in the words of one Barnard student, quote, people who love each other enough to want to live together but wish to avoid the disaster of a premature marriage. Far short of such committed relationships, the sexual expectations that had been present throughout our college years seemed to escalate as the veil of hypocrisy lifted. Now, for several generations, I can tell you as a historian of sexuality, dating had involved an exchange in which monetary expenditures for recreation gave men sexual access to women's bodies with an implicit understanding that women set the boundaries to protect their virtue or at least their reputations. In the new sexual order that was emerging in campus on other campuses in the late 60s, virtue lost its premium and women had less leverage to set limits. At the same time, the celebration of sensuality within the youth culture and the growing popularity of recreational drugs, at the time primarily marijuana, created an atmosphere conducive to free love. Now, not all Barnard students followed this path, but I personally felt both the lure of sexual opportunity and the absence of older excuses for restraint. The line, between choice and coercion blurred, though the risk of pregnancy remained. I still cringe when I recall the hostility with which one young man demanded of me, why aren't you on the pill? The answer at that point was the side effects. Above all, I recall the soft-spoken SDS member from Princeton who came to dinner at 616 and later invited me to join some friends for a picnic on his campus. When it lasted into the evening, he ignored my refusal to have sex with him. And then he had the nerve to say afterwards, I hope you aren't angry. Deeply shaken, I returned to New York and found a gynecologist who administered what we would now call a morning aftershot. Not until a decade later, when the feminist anti-rape movement had coined the term date rape, did I express my anger and stop internalizing the blame for this incident. And it was only last fall that I learned that the same young man had tried to coerce a close Barnard friend, and I deeply regretted 
not having told anyone at the time what had happened that night. Eventually, my own process of becoming a feminist and coming to terms with the effects of gender in my own life helped me rethink sexual freedom. As a Barnard sophomore, I had declined Professor Baxter's suggestion that I enroll in her course on women's history, preferring, as I told her, to study real history. <laughs> During 1968, though, I became more sensitized to all forms of authority, including patriarchy. That year, I finally absorbed some of the lessons that sociologist Mira Komrovsky had tried to impart about the limitations placed on the aspirations of female students. I was not alone in my questioning, although I wasn't aware of it at the time, the Columbia women in SDS had chafed under the sexist division of labor within the occupied buildings. Beyond campus, New York feminists circulated the mimeographed political critiques that by 1970 would raise my own consciousness about sexism. In the meantime, leaving American culture to work abroad brought gender into clearer view for me. In my journal for the summer of 68, I noted rural Japanese women carrying heavy loads and working in rice fields, geishas in training, and married businessmen drinking into the night with hostesses at clubs. Back at school that fall, I was disappointed that Professor Baxter was not offering women's history. But in other classes, I studied Japanese women during World War II, and I wrote about the radical anarchist Emma Goldman in the process, I began to take myself more seriously as a student, perhaps even a historian. I continued to believe in sexual freedom, but I also began to reevaluate its meaning for me. Well before I read the critiques of the sexual revolution, written by writers such as Barnard instructor Kate Millett, whose book Sexual Politics would appear in 1970, a Joni Mitchell song shook the foundations of my view of sexual liberation. As I listened to her perform in Greenwich Village in the fall of 1968, I took to heart the words of Cactus Tree. Now at first I happily identified with the woman she described who had a man waiting for her in every port while she is so busy being free until the punchline brought me up short. And her heart is full and hollow like a cactus tree. Was that me? Was I free or hollow? Had I rejected authority or lost my center? Did the sexual revolution fulfill me? Did men? Over the years, answering those questions would lead me down paths that coming of age at Barnard had not prepared me to travel. To be precise. Freshman year, a story had circulated about my dorm floor, Seven Reed Hall, with a moral that we had a reputation to overturn. For in 1963, some binocular-wielding Columbia dorm residents had observed two roommates on the Broadway side of Seven Reed engaging in a sexual relationship. As a result, the Barnard students had been expelled. I do not know what became of the male voyeurs. Seven Reed had to live down its lesbian reputation, hence the urgency of proving our heterosexual credentials. That story helped seal off my interest in the subject of homosexuality for the rest of my Barnard career, an effect I have later read extended to other students. 
I never noticed the small ad in the Barnard Bulletin announcing the fledgling student homophile movement. I never thought twice about President Peterson's female companion with whom she hosted tea at her home. Were they cohabiting? And I probably felt pity for Barnard students who did not seek boyfriends. Only a few years at later at graduate school at Columbia, after reading the women's liberation literature on loving another woman and the woman-identified woman, and after learning through a beloved gay male friend about an emerging lesbian and gay academic community, that I begin to consider women as lovers as well as friends. And only after becoming a feminist, and significantly, I think, after I had a job and had achieved some measure of economic security, did I come out as a lesbian. Eventually, I would write about the history of sexuality, including the constructions of same-sex desire and lesbian identity. Coming of age at Barnard led the way by teaching me that sexual freedom always involves both risks and boundaries. Freedom for whom, I eventually learned to ask. I have described tonight a personal journey from a conventional frosh to a moderate, then only partially radicalized senior. Mine may be, well, unique as a coming-of-age story, but I think it is akin to a larger narrative of gradual change in which other students also confronted the dilemmas of questioning authority. On the one hand, the civil rights student and anti-war movements, as well as the sexual revolution, promised emancipatory, if not utopian, visions of a more egalitarian world. On the other hand, each attempt to overthrow older values created new vulnerabilities. Historians debate the good versus bad 60s, or whether members of the new left and student movements were idealists trying to expand American democratic ideals, or misplaced revolutionaries who brought on the subsequent conservative backlash. For me, these contrasts oversimplify the era. The quest for rights did not disappear amidst the rhetoric of liberation in the late 60s, but continued to inspire many of us to seek social justice, and in particular, to expand democratic ideals of self-determination to women. Furthermore, even if the more revolutionary students who occupied buildings fostered backlash in the heartland, they also forced me to question institutional complicity and to seek a more open and accountable university. Fortunately, I had the privilege of navigating the dilemmas of questioning authority while at Barnard, where faculty modeled both intellectual and political engagement. This college made bearable the difficult passage of coming of age and set me on the course of becoming a scholar and teacher. Today, I might still argue with Margaret Mead about the generation gap, but I would have to admit, in retrospect, that I am indebted not only to the youth culture of my generation, but also to the wisdom of those elders who challenged authority. Thank you.
about, Estelle will take questions, but before you, you ask anything, I, I want to uh, announce that uh, Estelle will be signing books at the, the back afterwards. So those of you who have books in your hands can pick them up and uh, be patient for a moment. Any questions? Comments or questions, memories of 68 welcomed. <laughs> Um, and we do have a microphone, oh, so if anybody wants to stand up, I can bring it to you. Hello? All right. First of all, so I want to thank you so very, very much, and I also want to thank the college. Um, I'm from the class of 1971, and 1968 was the, our freshman year. And in many of our reunions, this has been coming up again and again, and there hasn't seemed to be a forum to openly begin to talk about, and I'm choking up right now, <laughs> um, this experience. So I really want to thank the college, and I would imagine that the class of 68 has had something to do with this. So I want to also thank those of you in 68 that have been part of planning all this year in the reunion for this year, very much for the courage to be able to bring this forward again and provide a forum where we can, we can discuss the experience. One of the things you mentioned, um, a phrase really struck me. The phrase struck me when you were recounting your experience, which was the decision to become, to, the feeling of being a part of the experience at that moment, part of the history, making a choice at that point, but feeling part, whoops, rather than um, a watcher or an observer of history, whoops, history. Hello? Hello? Okay. Um, rather than being an observer, to actually step into and be a participant, a maker, um, of history at that point, and that resonated with me. Um, had 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 grown up in a small town upstate New York, Albany, um, and had witnessed um, my father. There was a democratic machine in Albany for 50 years, which had become corrupt, and my father, part of a group of young men, that decided they were going to stand up to this machine and actually risked. Um, their businesses uh, to do that. And so when, and had listened to my um, people I knew, uh, younger than, older than I was, having gone to the, um, uh, the experience in the South of the, the civil rights. And this for me was the experience here in 1968 was my point of saying this is the issues that have come up are important for me to take a stand, to make a choice. And I happened to choose after a couple of days to go into Avery and went through um, the arrests and, and subsequent, um, mm -hmm. the subsequent experience um, of all of that. But it was a point at which I passed, made a choice, and then went into a yeah. different level of adulthood and of a sense of participation and the responsibility of participation in what's going on. And taking responsibility for one's actions. Yes. It really was, was a yes. coming of age moment, I yes, understand. Absolutely. And I would yeah. also say one thing that I remember as a senior, when the frosh were coming in, they were already radicalized in high school. And they were coming in much more radical. 
And it was almost a little scary. You know, like, it took me all these years to get there, and they were ready to go, and that may have something to do with some of the subsequent protests. But thank you. Yeah. I'm also a member. Is this on? Yes. I'm also a member of the class of 71. Okay. Okay. I'm also a member of the class of 1971. I came to Barnard because the notices on the bulletin board were very interesting. <laughs> but when Hamilton Hall was taken over, and I had a class in Hamilton Hall, yeah. I was upset because my parents had paid a lot of money for me to come here. Yeah. So, and, and I, there were a lot of very tall people there. So I just left, and I went back to my dorm because I didn't know what to do, and it all didn't make sense to me. That weekend, I went home to a bar mitzvah, and um, this was in, outside of Boston, and the, my family said, what's going on? And I felt compelled to tell them, and it didn't make sense to them. And the more I told them, the more I realized that I belonged inside the buildings. Oh, <laughs> so as a show of my beliefs, which were becoming more and more firm, the more I spoke to my parents and aunts and uncles. I came back to Barnard, went into the math building, spent the next few days there, but in deference to the way I'd been brought up, I refused to indulge in premarital sex <laughs> on the floor of the math building. <laughs> Consequently, I left the math building for an evening affair, only to find out that the bust had taken place oh. in my absence. <laughs> End of story. That's a great story. Thank you so much. That's so reaffirming of this process of this need to explain to our parents that I discovered and look at my papers. But you know, one of the buildings, and I can't remember now which one it was, they voted no, what was it, no drugs, no alcohol, no sex in the building. That wasn't true for all of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell my little story about the sociology versus anthropology departments in 1970. And it was interesting because you've talked about the various different strains of the anti-war movement. 68 was about the gym, it was about the war, it was about many things. But in 1970, um, what was interesting was, uh, as the Cambodian invasion was occurring, the students, and I was a graduate student by then, so it was, I think, quite different from being an undergraduate. I graduated in the class of 63. Uh, so I was quite old by 1970. And um, so the sociology graduate students took over Fairweather Hall. And their target really seemed to be the sociology faculty. And the, the, their focus of anger seemed, was in fact the university and this generation of, of faculty members. The anthropology department, now the anthropology department was pretty much on the left wing of things generally. All of the anthropologists, faculty and students, gathered together in a, in a lecture hall. Margaret Mead was there. So she wasn't into the generation gap herself at that time. I can understand her, her, her argument with you. And we all decided that we were not going to shut down the, the office or the department 
you know, in case someone decided, or not decided, but in case someone happened to be having a psychotic episode in New Guinea and needed, you know, help or whatever. Um, but we were going to suspend classes and we were all going to go out to Queen. I come from Queens, actually, but we ended up going to Maspeth. And this, this is sort of the, the uh, umwelt of uh, what became Archie Bunker and every stereotype of all in the family. These were working class people, many of them gold star families, where the star of the, of the young man who'd been killed in the war already was hanging in the window. And you know, these were many people who liked to be washing the floor mats of their cars of a Saturday. And we students and faculty were gonna talk to them about the war. Now we got certainly, a, we got a certain amount of hostility. We certainly found out that many people's view of the American government was that we had a president who ought to be listened to and other branches of government, you know, were kind of either not there in their minds or not very important. But many people were touched and we could reach them. And it certainly didn't, you know, bring the war to an end. But the, the impulse there was to go out and go across and reach out. And that, that's really my most powerful memory, mm -hmm. I think, of all of that time of upheaval. Um, I, I didn't at, know that. That's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Well, let, let's, oh. can Sherry have a question? Yeah, uh, please, uh, yeah, yield it to our illustrious president. Uh, I'm Sherry Suttles, president of the class of 69, and I'm just so proud and pleased to have Estelle here today and to be able to fly in from Florida. What I want to do is more, rather than a question, I, I need to tell y'all, I have been working on a film, a documentary about this period, but it's gotten commingled with the class of 69 because I'm the class of 69. And we wanted to do a movie for years before this big event came up in April. Um, so we have Hamilton Hall, but we have the black students in Hamilton Hall telling the fact that they did not trash, they did not have sex, so that must have been an earlier period of the takeover in Hamilton Hall. Uh, and that's why we're doing this movie. But uh, please, I've got a DVD with me. If anybody wants to see it another time, I can show it to you. Aaron Frederick has it in the alumna office. The reason I'm rising is we need help to pull it together. We have 30 more days before the big commemoration. And the way Miss Estelle talked is what we need. We need a narrator who can put all this in perspective. So I think I'm going to draft you okay. because you've covered all the bases, and we just have a lot of nice pictures and music. We need a narrator. Thank you yeah, so much, good Estelle. Idea. Thanks, Sherry. Um, shall we? I'd be happy to speak informally back at the book table if anybody didn't want to raise their hand and tell their story to the crowd. But thank you so much for your reception. Yeah. Thank you all for coming. Thank you.